Thank you very much. Um, and yeah, before I start, Ellie sends her apologies um, that she's not able to be here today. She's actually teaching every Monday, so she's unable to come. But this uh, work that I'm talking about today comes from a book that I've written with her and another two of our colleagues in the Centre for Parenting Culture Studies called um, An Introduction to Parenting Culture Studies, really boringly. <laughs> um, but that should be out with Paul Grave uh, next year, and this is the sort of chapter that um, I've contributed to it, really. Um, so, yeah, without further ado, um, opening her book, uh, Parenting Out of Control, the US sociologist Margaret Nelson describes how child rearing has changed over the last 40 years. When I was raising my children in the 1970s, there were no baby monitors to help me hear them cry in the middle of the night, no cell phones to assist me in keeping track of their whereabouts at every moment, and no expectation that I would know any more about their educational success that they or a quarterly report card would tell me. Indeed, although I thought of myself as a relatively anxious parent, I trusted a girl in the third grade to accompany my five-year-old son to and from school. Uh, And when he was in first grade, I allowed him to walk that mile by himself. In retrospect, and from the vantage point of watching my younger friends and colleagues with their children today, my parenting style seems, if not neglectful, certainly a mite casual. So Nelson is far uh, from alone in her observation that expectations around and experiences of how we raise our children have shifted in fairly fundamental ways over the last half century. Academics, journalists and parenting experts tell us that as well as being more attentive and anxious, today's mothers and fathers are not only intensive and paranoid, they are in fact out of control. And that's what uh, Nelson's book um, proposes really. Now, this paper is going to look at how child rearing, particularly in the US and the UK, but also kind of beyond, has expanded in recent years to encompass a growing range of activities that were not previously seen as an obligatory dimension of the task. We, as in me and Ellie, argue that the extension of parenting is not down to material changes in the health and safety of children, for if anything, children are healthier and safer than ever before. Rather, we suggest that our perception of children themselves has changed. So children today are seen as more vulnerable to risks impacting on physical and emotional development than ever before. Uh, And sort of as a corollary of that, parents are now understood by policymakers, parenting experts and parents themselves as uh, godlike and wholly deterministic in an individual child's uh, development and future. This has inflated the importance of uh, the parenting role, uh, precipitating a range of sort of intensive styles of parenting. So we have everything from, you know, sort of the Gina Ford mum to the tiger mother, the attachment parent, the helicopter mother. Um, And in turn, these parenting styles have themselves become a lens by which many adults, and particularly mothers, derive a sense of sort of identity or what I've called identity work in some of of my stuff with, with attachment parents. That's sort of akin to a vocation. And so just to give a very quick outline of the paper, um, I sort of start by looking at the emergence of this term parenting um, and then look at what intensive mothering really involves in practice. You know, what are we talking about when we say things have changed, if if they have? Uh, And then go through a brief history of childhood, thinking about how that intersects with parenting culture and close with some kind of implications for contemporary parents. So parenting, what's new? What what is it that this word kind of tells us? Um, I think a key challenge for this paper and actually for this seminar series as a whole 
is to really develop the best understanding that we can um, of the relationship between continuity and change. You know, in terms of parenting, for example, it's clear that for many centuries there have been child experts or self-proclaimed kind of authorities who set out their views on the mistakes that parents make or what parents should or you know, shouldn't do. But our kind of proposition um, that the social, social cultural context in which parents raise their children has changed in recent years seems to us uh, to be strongly supported by the evidence. So, as becomes fairly rapidly apparent for anyone who starts to research the way you know, any routine aspect of bringing up uh, children is now talked about, very particular language is used to describe these activities, and that is um, parenting. Uh, this verb, to parent, is a relatively sort of new one. Um, obviously, it's existed as a noun for a very long time, but this graph sort of here indicates how this interest in the practice of parenting um, has really escalated in, in recent decades. And, you know, this is the mention in sort of um, UK publications. If one looks, for example, at the question of how to discipline children, uh, this is rarely discussed as a community task or responsibility of adult society as a whole, but rather as a parenting strategy. Uh, focus primarily on changing parental behaviour so as to discourage you know, spanking or shouting at children, which is often expressed in the sort of advocacy of positive parenting. Uh, there are parenting manuals, parenting guides, parenting classes, parenting education uh, that all purport to be um, able to improve uh, matters in this area of the everyday life of parents. The same is true for most aspects of raising a child, you know, feeding, um, how, how you feed your children, how you talk to them, whether you sleep with them or apart from them, um, even how you play with your children. These have all become areas of action subsumed under um, the umbrella term of parenting and that there is you know, parenting advice related to, to all of them. So a central source of scholarship for what we kind of call parenting culture studies is to understand the development of this terminology and its usage and meaning. In the first instance, uh, Frank Faraday's book, um, Paranoid Parenting, is a book that's been quite sort of central to this um, body of work and has provided um, this sort of fairly useful um, description. Child-rearing is not the same as parenting. In most human societies, there's no distinct activity that today we associate with the term parenting. In agricultural societies, children are expected to participate in the work and routine of the community and are not regarded as requiring special parenting attention or care. The belief that children require special care and attention evolved alongside the conviction that what adults did mattered to their development. These sentiments gained strength and began to influence public opinion in the 19th century. The work of mothering and fathering was uh, not now endowed with a profound importance. It became defined as a distinct skill that could assure the development of character traits necessary for a successful life. Once children are seen as the responsibility of a mother and father rather than of a larger community, the modern view of parenting acquires salience. So from this point of view, this kind of trajectory um, towards placing particular significance on the role and contribution of the parents using their skills to ensure a child's successful life has had quite a long history. It's at least as old as industrialisation. And as another influential author that I'll talk about, um, Sharon Hayes, puts it, it, it may be considered the sort of basis for contemporary parenting culture um, lying in the, the working through of the separation out of the family um, from wider econo um, economy and society. However, uh, despite this long history, um, it's also recognised that parenting has required specific connotations more recently. 
Um, whoever invented the term parenting was not primarily interested in the lives of children, notes Faradi. Until recently, the term to parent referred exclusively to the act of begetting a child. Today, it's deployed to describe the behaviour of mothers and fathers. Um, and so there's this kind of turn towards the explicit focus on the activity of the parent and the, their behaviour. Uh, and this sort of idea that we'll look at a bit later of this, what's called determinism um, around that. Now, in the, the sort of decades since the publication of Paranoid Parenting, there's been quite an expansion of research into this area, um, uh, looking at uh, how parenting has kind of expanded, if you like. Um, so, Suisa and Ramakus and, uh, have written a really excellent book around this. Um, and as I say, there, there is a long sort of history to this term, but as you can see, oops, sorry, with the graph, um, it really does kind of take off in the, in the 1970s in particular. Um, there's, there's this sort of idea of a growing momentum, particularly from the 70s onwards, um, as a targeting, and a targeting of parental behaviour as deficient. Uh, and parenting is something of a sort of task or a, almost like a joyless job that has to be condu- you know, conducted under the watchful gaze of experts. As well as being inherently bound up with the idea of a deficit um, of parental behaviour that must be addressed if if children are to succeed, studies of parenting also indicate that this term is inherently bound up with the idea that other people than parents have special insights that can and should be brought to bear. One of the dominant observations from studies is that parenting is now viewed as an activity that cannot be carried out kind of naturally or, you know, just a kind of common sense uh, activity. Good parenting, in contrast, is considered to be a form of learned interaction, widely discussed as a skill set. So in sum, the sort of central proposition to emerge from this very preliminary assessment of the term parenting is that it's not a neutral term um, to describe what parents do as they raise their children. Rather, the transformation of the noun parent into the verb parenting has taken place through a socio-cultural process, centering on the belief that parenting is a highly important and problematic sphere of social life. Indeed, it is almost always discussed as a social problem, in some way uh, sort of blamed for social ills. In turn, parenting culture can be defined as um, more or less, uh, the more or less formalised rules and codes of contact that have emerged over the recent years which reflect this deterministic view of parents and define expectations about how a parent should raise their child. So what is um, intensive parenting or intensive mothering um, and how does that relate to this kind of emergence of parenting now as I mentioned one of the sort of earliest and still most influential observers of the changes in parenting culture was the US sociologist um, Sharon Hayes in her 1996 book called The Cultural Contradictions of Motherhood and she noticed that many mothers um, that she worked with working mothers were going to extreme lengths in the course of raising their children and so she says Why do so many professional class employed women find it necessary to take the kids to swimming and judo and dancing and tumbling classes, not to mention orthodontists and psychiatrists uh, and attention deficit specialists? Why is the human bonding that accompanies breastfeeding considered so important that elaborate uh, contraptions are now manufactured to allow children to suckle on mothers who cannot produce milk? Why are there copious courses for babies, training sessions in infant massage, sibling preparedness workshops and designer fashions for two-year-olds? Why must a good mother be careful to negotiate with her child, refraining from the demands for obedience uh, to an absolute set of rules? Now, this is uh, yeah, over 10 years ago, um, and uh, I think it's fair to say that this kind of trend is one that's been sort of um, on the increase since then. 
Now, Hayes recognises that children need an extended period of physical care uh, to make the transition from infancy to adulthood, of course. But as she says, um, modern American mothers do much more than simply feed, change and shelter their children until the age of six. And it's this more with which um, I am concerned, she says. This more involves devoting large amounts of time, energy and money um, or material resources to the child. There's a belief that the child's needs must be put first and that uh, mothering should be child-centred. And this more is almost always done by the mother rather than the father. These, these messages about parenting are strongly internalised by women so that even where fathers are very involved, and that's the kind of classic term that crops up, ultimately the buck stops with the mother. And finally, this more requires that a mother pays attention to what experts say about child development. So it's not okay to just sort of make do and um, do what seems easiest. So Hayes kind of coins the term um, intensive motherhood to describe an ideology uh, that it urges mothers to spend a tremendous amount of time, energy and money in raising their children. And according to this ideology, the methods of appropriate child rearing are construed as child-centred, expert-guided, emotionally absorbing, labour-intensive and financially expensive. But as she says, the ideas are certainly not followed in practice by um, every mother, but they are implicitly or explicitly um, understood as the proper approach to the raising of children by the majority of mothers. So rather than, you know, I wouldn't want to imply that this is a kind of uniform um, set of practices which is, you know, rigorously followed by, by all women um, here, there and everywhere. Rather, there's this sort of emergence of a normative standard um, by which mothering practices are kind of, um, and arrangements are evaluated, if you like. Now, Hayes is particularly puzzled by the emergence of um, the ideology of intensive mothering um, at a time when women, in the US at least, make up over 50% of the workforce. Um, one might expect that as women work longer hours, motherhood actually becomes less time-consuming, um, yet that does not appear to be the case. And in fact, according to time-use studies, um, in the case of two-parent families, today's children are in fact spending substan substantially more time with their parents than in 1981. Now, this is despite an increase in female participation in work, um, despite an increase in attendance at daycare and preschool by children, and despite an increase in um, time spent by um, as fathers with children. So perhaps it's not surprising, then, that the mothers that Hayes was working with talked about being tired, overstretched and torn, um, the sort of classic uh, word of our generation, when the worlds of work and home have become um, both sort of so demanding. Not only is a parent spending more time with their children, the quality of that time has become far more intense. Now, numerous scholars have picked up on Hayes' concept of intensive motherhood to describe the contemporary experience of parenting in Euro-American settings, um, as well as you know, elsewhere. And actually, in that book, that's kind of what we, what we do, sort of look at how it's spread or not around the world. Now, uh, Douglas and Michaels, in particular, focus on the idealistic portrayal of motherhood in the US media, uh, where motherhood is presented as this sort of ultimately fulfilling um, you know, experience for women. And they talk about this as the new momism. Um, the insistence that no woman is truly complete or fulfilled unless she has kids, and that women remain the best primary caretakers of children, and that to be a remotely decent mother, a woman has to devote her entire physical, psychological, emotional, and intellectual being 24-7 to her children. And again, they sort of really draw attention to how this is a highly kind of romanticised, idealised standard that often leaves a lot of people feeling that they come up short, you know, in relation to it. Joan Wolfe, also writing about motherhood in the US, 
links the kind of public interest in motherhood to a broader argument around risk consciousness and the emergence of a neoliberal culture, um, where dangers are redefined as risk and thus viewed as the product of human action and decision-making rather than of fate. Um, individuals hold themselves ever more responsible for ensuring the safety of themselves and those who are dependent um, on them. Uh, Wolf therefore talks about total motherhood to characterise the experience of contemporary mothers. Um, and so she, her sort of argument really is that mothers these days are expected to become um, experts on all aspects of child rearing. So, you know, lay paediatricians, psychologists, consumer product safety inspectors, toxicologists and educators. Um, mothers must not only protect their children from immediate threats, but are also expected to predict and prevent any circumstance that might interfere with putatively normal development. Uh, and she, in particular, um, sort of draws attention to what, the way in which this focus on risk um, and uh, which frames good motherhood as sort of uh, very much child-centred, it means that no cost is considered uh, too high for, for mothers to bear. Since children are kind of vulnerable and unable to protect themselves, mothers are the ones who are charged with reducing or avoiding altogether any risk to their um, children's health and well-being. Uh, Frank Ferrady in particular draws attention to the army of professionals who now colonise parenting uh, as it's increasingly understood to be too important a task to be less left to parents themselves to deal with. Um, instead, he, as he sort of argues, the view of policymakers, um, particularly in the US and the UK, is that parents need to be enabled to parent well on the basis of research about the characteristics of effective parenting. And that's Alan Johnson talking in 2007. And actually... Um, uh, Edwards, uh, Gillies and Edwards, who are coming to talk to you um, next week, back up this um, analysis in their research on the differences between parenting in the 1960s compared with the 1910s uh, in, in Britain. So, you know, what would have been considered sort of um, normal parenting in the 60s would be considered um, pretty much neglectful today, so leaving children unsupervised to play or, or looking after sort of younger children, that kind of thing. Uh, Organisations um, such as the British Medical Association have even gone so far as to abandon the, the use of the term accident in, in favour of the term unintentional injury um, in order to emphasise that what were once seen as random and unavoidable um, exposures to adversity um, can now actually be monitored, uh, predicted and prevented. Um, so these shifts in perception around risk have, have not only kind of um, ideologically changed how we think about children and parenting, which I'll, I'll talk about a bit later, but also you know, physically changed the landscape that, that children inhabit. If you think about how playgrounds are constructed these days um, or the kind of commutes that children take, are they allowed to walk to school or are they driven, you know, are these kind of things. And so Nelson, um, who, who I sort of opened with, she actually highlights the way in which technologies themselves have, um, and specific brands of those technologies, now characterise the experience of contemporary parenting for many people. Um, in their wish to be ever-present, constantly attuned parents, and you know, who would risk the accusation of being otherwise when so much is at stake, parents have embraced technologies such as baby monitors and cell phones um, to adopt a state of what she calls hypervigilance. Um, the irony is that not only are these technologies sort of uh, financially expensive, in line with Hayes' outline of intensive motherhood, they actually do quite little to alleviate the anxiety she describes, because if anything, they kind of extend and intensify it. Um, interestingly, she shows that whilst this is particularly acute during infancy, um, this vigilance extends beyond childhood, even to the point where, where children <laughs> leave to go to college, for example. Many of her undergraduate students report being in contact with their parents several times a day. 
uh, with parents being heavily involved in their children's academic life, um, you know, in contact with their tutors by, by phone, email and in person. Um, and Nelson uses um, Annette Leroux's term concerted cultivation to describe the constant work of making sure that children achieve their potential, but also sort of points to some of the negative implications of this hypervigilant involved parenting culture. Um, and she recounts the example of parents who stay with their children um, in their room during Freshers' Week or, you know, as they go off to college for fear that they sort of can't cope without them. Now, anyway, that's just a sort of very quick overview of some of the um, arguments that are being made in, in this kind of area of sociology. But what each of these scholars point to is that within this new style of parenting, a specific skill set is denoted, a certain sort of level of expertise about children and an affiliation to a certain way of raising a child and a, you know, perhaps a particular educational strategy. Um, clearly, being well-educated is a requirement for participation in these choices between parenting models, as is a certain you know, uh, level of access to economic resources, which enable parents to kind of consume the material goods that have come to define these methods. Um, but it's also about adopting a certain sort of subjectivity or identity. Um, most of all, parenting means being both discursively positioned by and actively contributing to the networks of idea, value, practice and social relations that have come to define a particular form of the politics of parent-child relations within the domain of the contemporary family. Now, again... Um, there are obviously um, very different ways that this model um, of uh, intensive parenting is sort of interpreted. Uh, it doesn't affect all parents equally, and um, certainly around the world there are sort of different interpretations, as I say. But as I say, it remains an important kind of cultural script which parents respond to in negotiating their own practices. Now, people have looked at how intensive parenting intersects with lots of issues, you know, gender, class, um, race, every, you know, infant feeding method, teenage parenting, consumption patterns, disability, uh, non-traditional families, um, and, and, you know, many other uh, variations in between. But as I say, a sort of common theme of these observations is that this generalised anxiety and uncertainty around child-rearing is not only negative for adults, but it's kind of negative for the next uh, generation as well. With examples like Nelson's undergraduate students, many critics have, have declared that we're now breeding what's called a, a nation of wimps by, by Murano. The American author Judith Warner, for example, has written about her experience of motherhood in Paris, as has Pamela Druckerman more recently. Uh, on her return to the US, Warner noticed how distorted the culture around mothering had become, where in France, women were encouraged to lead a balanced life to avoid falling into excessive child-centeredness. In the States, she saw mothers who had turned into a generation of perfectionist control freaks, more concerned with creating the perfect playgroup or tracking down the last gram of trans fat in their kids' crackers than in running or changing or even participating in the, in the larger world. Now, Warner kind of diagnoses this as a problem of control. You know, where women are positioned as ultimately responsible um, as, for the harm to their children, uh, as she puts it, it's about how feeling out of control sort of d derives them to parent in ways that are contrary to their better instincts, uh, their deepest values and best interests of their children. So that is, whilst many of these mothers recognise that um, they, this sort of overscheduling, hypervigilant culture isn't necessarily ideal for their children, there is a sense of motherhood um, as a winner-takes-all game. You know, with the expansion of college education, places in good schools have become ever more competitive, meaning that if you're, you know, you do not, if you're not the one to sort of put your child into swimming class or um, the judo class, whatever it is, 
um, you might be the one who's jeopardising their chances of getting into a good school, college, job and, and so on and so forth. But that's not to say there hasn't been some backlash to this kind of culture of um, intensive parenting. Uh, Skenaze, for example, recognises that parents have lost all perspective on safety and danger. They overanalyse the significance of everyday decisions and ultimately do more harm than good by neither teaching nor modelling uh, good judgment for their children. Instead, she endorses what she calls free-range parenting. Um, and others have implied sort of more explicitly that it's parents themselves who are uh, at fault for raising what's been called a generation of cotton wool kids. Here, it's kind of worth examining the proposed solution to the ex- excesses of parenting, um, uh, intensive parenting culture, and because this most often takes the, um, the form of an injunction to relax um, often with the help of kind of expert-led training. Um, But as Lee et al. uh, sort of indicate, the the strategies which encourage individual parents to find ways of resisting the excesses of intensive parenting through relaxing, building resilience in children, or as is also common, sort of reorganising gender roles so that fathers can take more of the burden uh, for childcare, um, all implicitly endorse the core message of intensive parenting culture, that parental actions should be organised around what is presumed um, to be best for the individual child in isolation from wider family or social considerations. By a similar token, these strategies endorse the conceptualisation of child-rearing as a highly privatised rather than a generational um, responsibility. So elsewhere, um, we sort of discuss the extent to which contemporary parenting culture encourages the privatisation of child-rearing through exacerbating parental anxieties about the dangers that may be posed to children by other adults. And we also indicate how this disruption of the idea that child-rearing is a generational responsibility which needs to be shared by adults in general um, brings with it the growing regulation and surveillance of these activities of both adults and children. And I'm not going to sort of elaborate on that here, but if that's something that people would be interested in talking about later, then, then we certainly can. Now, these developments can be understood as implying the emergence of a historically distinct way of thinking about childhood uh, and children. Today, a sort of growing distance has been placed between children and the adult world. Um, children, by and large, have less uh, to do than they used to with um, adults in, in, communities, in communities. Yet this distance by no, means me- by no means leads to children being left to do their own thing. Children are not freer or more autonomous beings by merit of their increased estrangement from adults. On the contrary, they are, as we've indicated, both more overseen in their activities uh, by their parents and um, subject to more intervention and social control than ever before. So the emergence of this particular sort of childhood and its distinct social construction can be considered the underpinning of of our contemporary parenting culture. Centering on the definition of children as at risk, it's this way of thinking about children, we argue, that uh, that they need uh, and uh, of what they need and the problems of how adults relate to them that makes paranoid parenting possible. Um, So I'm now going to very briefly... Um, sort of go through what it means to think of childhood as a social construct Um, and this is obviously a very large literature indeed a subfield of sociology relevant to this area and I'm not going to do justice to to it here rather the aim is to highlight the central points of this way of thinking about childhood that are relevant for our discussion Um, we then comment on the sort of present social construction of childhood with its emphasis on vulnerability and being at risk before returning to explore uh, in more detail some of the, the relation between this and parenting culture. So childhood has um, always been as much about the imagination and actions of adults as it has been about um, physical children. 
And certainly across space and time, societies have had very different ideas about children and how um, adults are expected to behave towards them. If children are uh, considered inherently good, for example, society is assumed to need to change to enable this natural purity to unfold, whereas if they are uh, assumed to be inherently bad, it is children that must be shaped by society. For the historian Philip Arias, author of The Centuries of Childhood, one of the sort of seminal and most widely debated studies on this area, certainly not uncontroversial, um, the idea of childhood did not even exist in medieval times. However, he says, this is not to suggest that children were neglected, forsaken or despised. The idea of childhood is not to be confused with affection for children. It corresponds to an awareness of the particular nature of, ch- of childhood. Um, the particular nature that which distinguishes the child from, adult, from the adult. In medieval society, this awareness was lacking. As soon as the child could live without the constant solicitude of his mother or his nanny or his cradle rocker, he belonged to adult society. Now, what Arius uh, sees is much less differentiation um, between uh, children and adults. Children were seen simply as small adults uh, and came to belong to adult society at a very young age. Many historians demonstrate this by giving the example of children sort of, you know, put to death for crimes such as theft, according to the, the general law at the time. Now, Arias also believed that children were treated with emotional indifference because parents could not afford to invest in them too highly due to high rates of infant mortality. Um, other historians disagree, um, arguing that it, there was good evidence that parents were interested and invested in children. Um, so Hugh Cunningham, for example, sees anguish and a struggle to make sense of their loss uh, in the writings by parents about the de- deceased children at the time. That said, he, argue, he agrees that youth was seen as an unenviable life stage rather than as something to be cherished, as is more common today. Indeed, the idea of childhood demarcated by its own clothes, toys, games, literature or education would have seemed kind of utterly foreign to the average medieval parent. But this picture started to change around the 18th century. Um, Postman's The Disappearance of Childhood argues that this shift owed much to do with the birth of the printing press. Uh, For in literate society, adulthood has to be earned, he says. It became a symbolic, not a biological achievement. Children became seen not as mini-adults, but as unformed adults who must be educated into maturity. The different conceptualisation of children was intimately related to wider changes uh, in the period. So as Goldberg says... The Enlightenment brought about a radically new conception of human beings. The idea that individuals are autonomous and rational, should have rights and responsibilities, and are capable of uh, participating in political life, came to fruition during this time. It was this conception of human beings that brought about the distinction between adults and children. So the emergent separation of adults and children was new and a very significant development. What it meant was that adulthood also came to be redefined with questions posed of how adults should socialise, educate and relate to children through this distinct period of childhood. Posing questions about adults and their relation to children is reflected in the writings of the philosophers um, John Locke and and Jean-Jacques Rousseau who held actually very different ideas about um, childhood. Um, For Locke, children arrived in the world as a sort of tabula rasa, you know, or a blank slate uh, that needed to be filled up with knowledge via education and sort of generally civilised by the adult world. Rousseau, by contrast, held a much more romantic vision of children, um, highlighting their charm, purity and need for protection. Um, And that was sort of demonstrated, I guess, in, in Emile, most obviously. As Gulberg writes, however, although the Lockean and Rousseauian views are often presented as being in contradiction, what's important is that both present an image of children as different from adults. 
Most historians agree, however, that um, this intellectual shift towards differentiating or constructing childhood did not translate into a time of life that could be called childhood for all children in the 18th or 19th centuries. You know, obviously, many people had little choice but to treat children as little adults. Um, it wasn't until the 19th and 20th centuries that the basic definition, um, definition of childhood, as we might sort of think of it, uh, really began to emerge as a reality for, for the sort of mass of children. Now, obviously, in part, this shift was also a product of um, things like fertility decline, um, itself a product of wider economic changes. Um, as life expectancy generally started to improve, families started to have less children, uh, fewer children, meaning that they could invest more highly in each child. Um, and for middle and upper classes families, at least, those children would not lead to work to help support the family unit. So these shifts influenced and were influenced by changing conceptions of both childhood and work. Um, as Wise puts it, the term child labour is a paradox for where labour begins, the child ceases to be. Indeed, central to the construction of childhood in its modern sense is the physical removal of children from labour um, and the development instead of schooling as the socially recognised and legitimated occupation for all children. As Cunningham observes, however, another factor was also critical in this emergence of childhood, not directly linked to education or work, but to the experience of childhood as an end in itself. Zelizer argues that as children ceased to be economically valuable, they came to play um, less and less part um, in earning money for the family and therefore became emotionally priceless or sacralised. So if modern childhood was invented and sacralised in this way, more recently it's come to be seen as a period of life that's under threat. Um, Postman, who, as I said, um, the dis- who published The Disappearance of Childhood more than 30 years ago now, is one of a number of critics expressing concern that childhood is no longer distinguishable uh, from adulthood. Just as literacy meant that adulthood could be achieved by children in the past, today that literacy is being replaced by media, which he argues requires no skill to master. So childhood as a category is sort of disappearing. Postman claims that there's evidence that children are no longer playing games, eating food or wearing clothes specifically designed for them, and contends that they lack a respect uh, for their elders and also lack a sense of shame. His concerns have come to be widely echoed in academic and media discourse. Uh, Indeed, the claims that childhood is at at an end, under threat, in crisis, um, or even toxic, are now sort of very frequently made. Whatever assessment is made of the demands of today's culture um, and what it places on children, it seems clear, however, that there's no sort of simple process of the disappearance of childhood, um, through which children are simply becoming like their medieval predecessors or, you know, just treated like adults. Um, while it is now the case uh, that, sign, that you know, there, there are sort of signs of the erosion of boundaries between adulthood and childhood, you know, again, for children being charged with adult criminal offences, it's also clear that there's been an expansion of childhood. Um, this takes a number of forms, you know, from the extension of time that most children spend in secondary education uh, to increase parental supervision of their grown-up children in higher education and employment. And so that's you know, back to kind of Nelson's example of the, the students. Now, the sociologist Alan uh, Prout also identifies this paradox or contradiction in the way that childhood is presently constructed. On the one hand, there's an increasing tendency to see children as individuals with a capacity for self-realisation and within the limits of social interdependency, autonomous action. On the other, there are practices directed at greater surveillance, control and regulation of children. Cunningham concurs that at no other time in history have we been quite so concerned about children and their safety. He says that children are more monitored today than ever before because they're viewed as endangered by engagement with the adult world. Um, In sum, he says that 
Uh, childhood in Western societies today has four overriding characteristics. The child is set apart as different from adults. The child is said to have a special nature that can be associated uh, with nature. The child is innocent but corruptible. And today the child is vulnerable and at risk. So in relation to Postman's points, Stern's uh, writing about American childhood over the course of the 20th century notes that our current ideas about children as at risk and emotionally fragile are prefigured by cultural representations in the 1920s. For Stern's, the basic cultural logic that's emerged in the 1920s has largely persisted as dominant cultural symbols still emphasise the preciousness of children, but also their vulnerability and lack of capacity. Certainly soon after the 1920s, expert studies in this field built on and cemented the concern with a psychological vulnerability during infancy. It was during the post-Second World War period that psychological and cognitive child development theorists also sort of came into ascendancy, with Freud, Erickson and Piaget in particular publishing their studies of childhood, associating childhood experience with adult development. What united these studies was the assumption of the absolute necessity of a mother's loving nurture, Attachment theory claimed that the constant presence of a loving and responsive attachment figure, you know, typically the mother, was the foundation for lifelong mental health. So on the basis of his research with children, um, institutionalised um, children, um, psychiatrist John Bowlby wrote, what is believed to be essential for mental health is that the infant and young child should experience a warm, intimate and continuous relationship with his mother or permanent mother substitute, in which both find satisfaction and enjoyment. A state of affairs in which the child does not have this relationship is called maternal deprivation. And so it was under um, the same sort of lines that the wealth of experts that we know today, um, so Spock, Leach and Brazelton, perhaps being three of the most kind of prominent to emerge in the second half of the 20th century, produced the first editions of their books which were designed to help parents' parents. The underlying paradigm uh, developed by these experts that experience in early infancy has lifelong implications and that this period of life is one entailing enormous kind of risk is now so taken for granted as to be unremarkable in contemporary parenting culture. And as indicated, it's the presumption of children as de facto vulnerable and at risk, which is the most distinct and important aspect of the social um, construction of childhood today. And this obviously has profound implications for uh, definitions of the mothering and fathering role. And so I'm just going to sort of talk, um, by way of wrapping up, if you like, of the, this inflation of, of the parenting role. Because it, it's, it's, um, it's hard to underestimate how far the concept of the at-risk child has expanded when we're talking about the area of parenting. <coughs> Children are cast as particularly vulnerable in today's culture, with their health and safety seen as compromised by a kind of toxic environment. And because of this, parents are, in effect, seen as risk managers, tasked with optimising their children's outcomes in conjunction with expert advice. The, the sort of corollary is that parents um, who themselves indulge in risky behaviour are now increasingly framed as a danger to their children. And so this is um, Ellie um, writing elsewhere. Attention has been drawn to the distinctiveness of a culture that now routinely represents parenting as the single most important cause of impaired life chances, outstripping any other factor. The idea that parents themselves constitute an important and, according to some, perhaps the most significant risk, uh, risk factor in their children's lives. Now, this logic um, obviously applies to sort of obvious candidates um, for the label of risky parents, you know, the father who smacks, the woman who drinks or smokes during pregnancy, or the mother who formula feeds, for example. But perhaps what's more interesting is the way that this logic now seems to apply to all parents. So, again, 
Um, Lee et al. writes, It's also been noted that the risk parents present to children is not only considered significant when parents are considered to be bad. Parenting is now problematised where parents are construed to be unaware or out of touch. Um, So, for example, in the threat to um, children posed by technologies um, or parental lack of awareness, for example, about the, the calorie content of the food that they feed their children. The sort of developmental paradigm now so firmly established as fact is one of the key reasons that children are seen as, uh, parents are seen as a determining force in how children turn out. The flip side to the vulnerable child, if you like, is the omnipotent um, parent. As Faradi puts it, um, omnipotent parenting is the other side of the coin to child vulnerability. And as he says, the interlocking myths of infant determinism, that is, the assumption that infant experience determines the course uh, of future development, and that parental determinism, um, the notion that parental intervention determines the future fate of a youngster, have come to have a major influence on relations between um, children and parents. By grossly underestimating the resilience of children, they intensify parental anxiety and encourage excessive interference in children's lives. By grossly exaggerating the degree of parental intervention required to ensure normal development, they make the task of parenting impossibly burdensome. Now, of course, the idea that um, children are at risk from their parents has also sort of had a long history. Uh, Christina Hardiman's historical study of childcare from John Locke to Gina Ford um, shows how scientific approaches to child rearing have have continually tried to um, sort of put um, parental authority into question. But I think um, today the strength of assumptions about parental determinism and the need for parenting expertise mean that now almost every parenting act, even the most routine, is analysed in minute detail, um, says Frady, correlated with negative or positive outcome and endowed with far-reaching implications for child development. So the sort of smallest act, you know, touching, feeding, talking, even loving your children these days um, is kind of presented as a a set of skills that need to be optimised. And this kind of uh, inflation of the parent role has meant that um, parenting has become an increasingly important part of adult identity. Um, as Faradi says, adults do not simply live their lives through children, but in part develop their identity through them. Parents are also inventing themselves. And this um, sort of became obvious in my research, as I said, around um, attachment parenting and other sort of work um, in that book around some single mothers by choice, for example, looking at how motherhood has become a sort of identity which women um, choose and work at um, and becomes their sort of primary um, nexus of identity work. Um, and this is what um, Faradi suggests for explaining why this sort of investment in per- particular parental tribes has become so prevalent. The moral significance of the child today is directly linked to the emptying out of adult identity. When the desire for recognition lacks an obvious outlet, the validation of the sense of self through one's child acquires a new importance. When in previous eras adults lived through their children, they did so as members of at least outwardly relatively stable families and communities. The child was used as a means of self-realisation and sometimes as an instrument of family advancement. Today, the child has been transformed into a far more uh, formidable medium for the validation of the adult self. At a time when very few human relations can be taken for granted, the child appears as a unique emotional partner. So, just to conclude and sort of think about a few points that um, we might want to discuss, this paper sort of argued that whilst there are important differences of class, gender um, and ethnicity, a particular parenting style has emerged in Euro-American contexts that is widely considered ideal. It's broadly one that is child-centred, expert-guided, emotionally absorbing, labour-intensive and financially expensive. 
what we suggest is that this has not emerged um, from below necessarily or spontaneously from parents themselves, but rather, rather as a product of cultural developments and influences at the levels of expertise, policy and intergenerational uh, transmission. And so these are just some sort of thoughts um, that people might be interested in talking about, you know, whether you agree or not. Um, the intensification of parenting is the process by which, in recent years, childering has become a more labour-intensive, demanding task. Whether this is premised on the acceptance of a sort of developmental paradigm, which attributes lifelong attributes to infant experiences, which then sort of you know, highlights child, child vulnerability and the importance of the parenting role in incongruence. The cultural turn towards intensive parenting obviously has not been experienced uniformly. Again, we can talk about that if people would like to. And whether or not you agree that this sort of inflation of the parenting role has um, had negative implications for society more broadly um, in encouraging over-involvement in children's lives and corroding the bonds between parents themselves who have become increasingly tribalised. And I'll leave it there.